wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are our first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions about God's word, whether it's a passage you're trying to understand or looking for biblical um, counsel as it applies to some issue of ministry or aspect of your life or family. If we can help, all you need to do again is call us at the number Rick just gave, 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number for our internet listeners is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. Or you can uh, text us uh, directly here into the studio, email us, and it will pop up on the screen in front of us. We get a lot of questions that way, and that address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can just dictate the question to Deb, who will be happy to receive it. I think we already have some callers, so let's go ahead and uh, jump in. All right, very good. Yes, we did have a few uh, that uh, dictated their question. One person wrote, I was recently asked about a supposed contradiction, and I wanted to get your take on this. In Genesis 1, 24 and 25, God says, let the earth bring forth animals. And in Genesis 2, 19 says, God formed the animals. They were saying this is a contradiction, not because of timing order, but because one God speaks and the other brings forth and the other God in the active process of forming, making animals more like man and being formed. I was hoping you could explain these uh, verses better and how these verses are in harmony. Well, it's a good question. Usually the reference uh, is in timing between these two chapters. Let me first uh, just read the two texts that you gave me. First, Genesis 1, 24 and 25. It said, then God said, let us uh, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And let me underscore, and you're thinking, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Then it says in verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps in the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then in the other passage that you mentioned uh, in Genesis 2, a little bit later, it says, uh, verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So uh, first you need to just remember that there are not two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2. And you might want to listen to the early chapters of my series on the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 gives the overall picture of the creation and how it unfolded in six literal actual 24 hour days, <laughs> no gaps in between. 
And Genesis 2 gives a fuller explanation, especially as it relates to to Adam. Uh, Let's first talk about the timing, though that's not the specificity of your question, but it is a question that often comes up in reference uh, to this particular um, text. In 2.19, it says, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. So on the surface, it seems to say that the land beasts and birds were created between Adam and Eve, um, as you read the whole second chapter. But Jewish scholars, Jewish rabbis, anyone who's had at least some uh, rudimentary teaching in in Hebrew, they recognize that there's no conflict between chapters one and chapters two. And so anyone who knows Hebrew doesn't argue that there's some kind of contradiction in terms of the timing where Adam and Eve were both created after the beasts and the birds as Genesis one teaches. Um, In Hebrew, the the precise tense of a verb is really determined by the context. And it's very clear from chapter one that the beasts and the birds were created before Adam. And so in light of that context, uh, Jewish rabbis and scholars have always taught that the word formed as it's, Uh, rendered here in the New American Standard, and really precisely so. In some translations, to underscore the tense contextually, they render it had formed or having formed. Uh, It's a clear indication that there's no disagreement between the two accounts. The only difference in the two accounts is uh, the explanation of how God did it. So the question stems, I think, again, from the wrong assumption that your friend is making as he challenges you and says there's a contradiction here, uh, that the second chapter of Genesis is somehow, you know, not in sync with chapter one. Uh, Genesis chapter two, understand, is not just another account of creation. That's what the liberal scholars do. They say there's, there's two creation accounts. But if you think about it and just pause and read through chapter two and compare it to chapter one, chapter two says nothing about the creation of the heavens and the earth and the atmosphere and the seas and the land and the sun and the stars and the moon and the sea creatures. It only mentions things that are directly relevant uh, to the creation of Adam and Eve and the life that God had purposed for them in the garden. So chapter one, we might call the the creation from God's perspective in chapter two as it relates to Adam and Eve. But when I was reading chapter one, verse 24, I was underscoring in your thinking, uh, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. So God, yes, spoke, but in chapter two, he tells us how he let the earth do that out of the ground, again, out of the earth the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Uh, It's just like in the creation of Adam and Eve, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, Adam and Eve, uh, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and so on and so forth. So the scripture says God created man Uh, In his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So when you come into the second chapter, God again gives great specificity as to how he did this. And he describes the creation of Eve coming after the creation of Adam and that she was made from his side and, and so on. So again, one is just a further explanation of the other chapter 
There's no contradictions at all. These are not two creation accounts. Uh, chapter two is really a, a detailed aspect of creation as it relates to the animals. And the animals are noted here without the other aspects of the creation because the animals are going to play a role in Adam's life. He's going to rule over them. He's going to name them uh, one by one. And, and God is too going to, to teach him uh, some very, very important lessons in terms of his own need. So uh, I hope that helps. That's a kind of a short answer. But if you really want to study this in detail, I think I did four or five sermons just in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And I, I deal with a lot of these so-called alleged contradictions that uh, the liberal scholars like to, to, to raise. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next caller has a heartbreaking question. They recently lost their four-year-old daughter, and this mother would mm-hmm. like to know where her girl is right now. Is she in heaven with Jesus? My, that is a heartbreak. I, I just, um, the pain you're going through is in, incredible. Uh, yes, uh, the, the Bible is very clear that your daughter is with the Lord. And uh, it doesn't matter um, that maybe at the age of four, not that it's impossible, but it doesn't matter that whether or not a four-year-old has received Christ or not. Uh, occasionally, I have to do the funeral of a, a child and just did one recently for a family and 13-month-old baby and did my own granddaughters uh, just about a year ago or so. Uh, in either case, there are many texts of scripture that point very specifically as to how God deals with children when they die. And you could certainly include in this miscarried babies and even aborted children, children who've been aborted. God doesn't uh, allow a, a baby to be created in the womb. Uh, and remember, a baby, when created in the womb, even if the creation was not under God's perfect order. In other words, a mother might have a baby out of wedlock. Uh, a baby might be uh, the product of a rape. Uh, there's all kinds of different scenarios. But once the baby is created based on the laws that God wrote into the universe, uh, that child is made in the image of God. And from the moment of conception is viewed as a person. Now, some have concluded that a little child, well, they're innocent. Well, really, children are not innocent. We all sinned in and with Adam, Romans 5, verse 12. Uh, so they're born with a sin nature. You don't have to teach a two and a half, three-year-old uh, to be selfish. They just kind of figure that out. Put two two-year-olds in a room and give them one toy and watch them fight over it. Uh, we have this inclination not that is uh, other-centered, but me-centered. I want my own way, and I want it now. And so you have to teach a two-year-old or three-year-old to to be share, uh, to share. You don't have to teach a five-year-old to lie. They're they're very creative. They can figure that out. You have to teach them to tell the truth. So children are born in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. King David will write in Psalm 55, 51. So we're sinners from the moment of conception. So the aspect that children are innocent and therefore they go to heaven is not uh, proper biblical reasoning, but they do go to heaven and there's many passages. For instance, there's an occasion when um, here I just turned to second Samuel 12 and it says, then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child 
And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. When it happened on the seventh day. So here's a guy who is um, so uh, grieving over this child for his life, knowing that the child is on the edge of life. Uh, so much so that he fasted for seven days on the seventh day, the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. They pled with him, David, you know, you need to eat something, Uh, David, it's okay. And, but he didn't listen to them. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do harm to himself In other words, if he was in this kind of state before the child died, what will he do when he finds out that the child is dead? He he might even uh, commit suicide in his grief. That's the thought behind it. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived the child was dead. So David said to the servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself and changed his clothes And he came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. So here's David. His whole perspective changes when he finds out his little boy has died. And this is really important um, because if David for a moment thought his child had died and gone to hell, he would not have been able to clean up, anoint, eat a wonderful meal and go and give praise to God. So then it says he came to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done while the child was alive? You fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously not. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, David was a believer. And some people have taken this, unfortunately, to say, well, David will just someday die like him and be buried in a a grave somewhere. Uh, We'll actually cover this topic a little bit this coming Sunday as we continue our study of the book of Revelation because we see in Revelation chapter six, where we are at this Sunday, a mention of both Hades and death. And Hades is the Greek term for the Old Testament term Sheol. And so we're going to look at a number of very, very critical terms as it relates both to the believer and the unbeliever. But the short answer is, is that Sheol has two compartments. There's righteous Sheol and there's unrighteous Sheol. And in righteous Sheol, a believer goes. It's also uh, referenced in the New Testament as Abraham's bosom. David was going to see his baby again. He recognized that. David was going to see his child again. And that brought David great comfort, so much so that he could eat a meal, he could worship the living God. He knew that he would see his child again. There's another passage in the Old Testament that I might uh, bring you to. Uh, the book of Jonah, most of us uh, know the uh, historical account of Jonah. It's been a long time since I've preached the book of Jonah, though one of my adult children 
recently reminded me that uh, they still knew the outline of, of Jonah when I taught it for the first time and they were just eight years old. And uh, Jonah uh, is a prophet of God who is called to go and, and preach to the enemies of God, to the Ninevites. It'd be like um, if North Korea started bombing us and, and we were at war with them and, and then we just viewed them as despiteful, hateful enemies uh, and you are sent to go win them to Jesus, you'd say, I'm not sure I want to do that. So, so Jonah was as much as anything, a patriot. And so in chapter one, we find him as the prodigal prophet. This was an outline God gave me back around 1990. And uh, in chapter one, he's the running prophet. He's running away from God. In chapter two, he's running with the Lord. He's, um, uh, excuse me, he's the praying prophet. He's getting his heart right. And he's coming back to the Lord. And when he's in the great fish in chapter three, he's the preaching prophet and he's uh, doing what God calls him to do. But in chapter four, he's the pouting prophet. And so he goes outside of the city and he wants to see what God is going to do. He's, I suppose, inwardly hoping that God's going to destroy the place. I mean, that's the implication of the text uh, because these are Israel's enemies. And he goes out and, um, we're told Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. Then he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he would see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant. It grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Here, here's Jonah um, getting all upset over a plant that he didn't plan himself, that God allowed to come up and, and God allowed to die. And, and God's teaching his prophet a lesson. Uh, sometimes people ask me, did he learn? Of course he learned. He wrote the book of Jonah. It's a historical account of what he went through. So yes, he, he did learn. And so God says, do you have good reason to be angry about the plan? He says, I've got good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, well, listen, you had compassion on the plan. He, he's trying to help him to get some perspective here. What's important. And there's a lot of us who sometimes get upset over temporal things and we miss the bigger picture of things that are really, truly eternal, things that will last forever. Now, remember, Nineveh is a city of 600,000 people. We know that based on the archaeology alone and uh, from writings, uh, from ancient cuneiform writings that describe this place at this time in history. So there's 600,000 people who live in this city. And God said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city? And listen, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. God is saying, look, there's 120,000 kids. Uh, and that's, um, it fits the ratio with archeology. span If there's 600,000 people in the city, that would be about right. 120,000 children. 
So the Bible once again confirms the archaeological finds of this uh, ancient city. And he uses this Hebraism here. Uh, this is an expression. Uh, 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. They can't say, well, this is my left or this is my right. He's describing little children. And, and God is just saying, look, you wanted me to destroy the city. You wanted me to rain fire down on the city and wipe out everybody in the city. Jonah, could you not at least have had compassion on the kids? Like I have compassion on the kids, much less the animals. Um, so again, it's a, it's a clear expression of what happens to children. But the best and most uh, uh, profound and precise description of what happens to children when they die is from the words of our Lord. And it's in a number of uh, passages in the gospel. Let me read a more extended passage to this dear mother who's lost her four-year-old child. This is from Matthew chapter 18. And we read at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him, the child before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as this child he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So God cares deeply about children and God takes it very seriously when someone causes a little child to stumble. Now, remember this, that Jesus never, ever, not once, uses an illustration, whether it's in a direct teaching or some kind of parable that has an error in it to teach truth. Jesus always uses truth to teach truth, and you'd expect that because he said, I am the truth. So for Jesus to liken the kingdom of heaven to little children and the childlike faith that they have. And you see that in little children, they have a childlike faith towards the Lord. Now the world can corrupt that. And Jesus warns about the stumbling blocks that people put in the innocent childlike faith that a child has towards our Lord And the world can corrupt that with all kinds of wickedness. And Jesus warns, about those who would do that, that it would be better for them to, to have a, a millstone that you would grind wheat with, a heavy, heavy millstone and be drowned in the deep, in the depth of the sea than to cause one of those to stumble. And then he says a few verses later, after he tells a little parable, he says, see that you not, do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who's in heaven. So the angels of God are assigned to little children. Sometimes we refer to a guardian angel. The Bible doesn't really teach the concept of a guardian angel as such, but it does teach that there are, there are angels, plural, who are assigned to children. And, and again, the Lord then says to us in verse 14, So it is not the will of your father who's in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So you have some clear, specific statements from our Lord. And I could have read Mark and Luke and, but he's so precise that your little 
four-year-old daughter is with the Lord in heaven. And someday you will, you'll meet your daughter, assuming you know Christ is your personal savior. And if you don't, then that would be a very important issue for you to settle. If you're not absolutely 100% certain that if Christ were to come today, or if uh, you were to die, that you would go home to be with the Lord, then you want to get that issue issue settled in your heart. And you might go to search the scriptures.org and listen to, would you like to have God as your friend? Uh, but the pain you're experiencing is intense and God will help you through it. And if you have other children, you've got to be a mother to them and, and love them and care for them and serve them. And in, in the midst of your grief, carry out the plan that God has for your life. And I hope you're in a good local church where a pastor or other moms, maybe even some who've walked that road can come alongside and be of help to you. Appreciate that question. Let's go on to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. morning. You still there? Hey, Anthony, how are you this morning? I'm fine. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Question, Pastor. I got one question with a three-part. Okay. Rick, you have to take notes on this one now, right? Okay. Okay. Pastor. The Bible speaks about, uh, God says, if, if you need or want wisdom, he will give it to you liberally, right? That's correct. Okay. My question is, what is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? And is God, is this a promise to everybody or to born-again people. Okay. And when Paul had his this Damascus Road experience, did he receive or did he get his knowledge and wisdom there? I, I know Paul, He I guess he was learning before he had his Damascus Road experience, but did he get all of his knowledge and wisdom Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Those are great questions. Um, In James chapter one, uh, James, of course, is writing to the believers. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Uh, People talk about the ten lost tribes. The Bible knows nothing about ten lost tribes. He he writes to the twelve tribes. In fact, we'll we'll discuss this a little bit when we come to Revelation chapter seven where we see 12 different tribes who are sealed by God to uh, preach during the time of the great tribulation. Uh, But then he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And we have a choice to make and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks... Uh, So he wants us to be lacking in nothing. He wants us to grow and mature. But if we lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So first, let me just say contextually, one of the primary places to ask for wisdom is in the midst of a trial. Uh, You know, we just had a lady call a moment ago who had lost her four-year-old daughter. And and that is just a, a tragedy as that mom goes through all the pain and grief of losing her little girl. Um, but one of the questions when you go through a trial is, God, what, what do you want to show me? What do you want to do in my life? What do you want to teach me? 
uh, through this. Uh, there are some trials that come upon us because we just live in a fallen world. You know, kids get cancer and die and uh, drunk drivers run them over and all, all kinds of different things can happen. Uh, but God, what do you want to teach me through this? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. And I think the all here is qualified by the audience to whom he is writing. So he's writing to believers, to the brethren Consider it all joy, my brethren. He's talking to born again, blood bought children of God. So this is not a wholesale open promise to anyone who asks God for wisdom, though. I certainly think if there was an unbeliever who was seeking towards God, you draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I think God might use different events to bring a person to himself because the God of all grace desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But contextually, this is a promise given to God's people that if we lack wisdom, we can ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him, not might, it will be, but we have to come in faith. We have to come knowing that God has made this promise. And so we come with a sense of expectation without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So we have to believe what God promised. God, you promised if I lack faith that you give it to me. And so I'm coming in faith today about such and such a trial that I'm going through. Now you could certainly apply this principle to other aspects of life. Uh, maybe you need wisdom as it relates to some future decision that you need to make. That would be a legitimate application of this, but we don't want to miss the context because we often just apply it to the application and we fail to ask for wisdom in the midst of the trial. And that's important because if we don't sometimes ask for wisdom in the midst of a trial, then that trial as he will later explain a few verses later in verse 13 can turn into a temptation if we don't respond properly to the trials that God allows to come into our lives. In reference to the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. Uh, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a, a Jewish man who studied under one of the great first century rabbis of the day, at least considered as such by other Jewish people, Gamaliel. But he was a man who was lost and had not responded to what God had revealed in his holy word. And so Paul was in his ignorance thinking he was serving God by persecuting the church of God. Uh, people as Paul will later write in the 10th chapter of Romans can have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Sometimes we think, oh, this person is so zealous for God. He's so passionate for God. Certainly God won't condemn him and send him to hell. You can have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, a misdirected zeal. You know, the classic example in our day would be people who blow themselves up. These Muslims who have a zeal for God, but it's not a zeal that is directed according to truth. It's a, it's a zeal that's directed according to, to error. Um, did Paul all at once receive knowledge? And one of the questions you asked was the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And there is a distinction between the two. Knowledge is information, though it can be used contextually to refer to more than that. But generally speaking, uh, it's used in reference to information. You can have information without having wisdom. So wisdom is, to, is knowing really how to take the knowledge 
and the revelation of God and apply it to our lives. And so God wants us to have wisdom. He wants us to apply truth to our lives. And so with that said, Paul uh, was given knowledge and insight, wisdom on the Damascus Road experience where God opened his eyes up to the, to the reality that the one he was persecuting was Jesus. Why do you persecute me? Uh, people sometimes ask, well, how was he persecuting Jesus? Jesus was already ascended into heaven. Well, it's a reminder to us that Jesus is so connected to his church. We are called the body of Christ that to persecute his body, his people is to persecute himself. So that's how deeply connected he is to his church. And so Saul recognized that he was actually persecuting the Lord Jesus, the one who had died for him. And so his eyes were open to the gospel. It was not given to him uh, through another person. Uh, certainly Ananias came along and had the privilege to baptize him. But Paul was already saved and he recognized that um, uh, Jesus was Lord. Now, did that mean that Paul was instantly wise in every avenue of life? Certainly not. Paul had to grow up like any other Christian. So for the next three years after his conversion, he's out in the desert. And I suppose it's a wonderful parallel in that just as Jesus with the other 12 gave them three years of specific ministry, he had a three-year postgraduate course with the Savior studying the scriptures and pulling things together. And so after three years, he emerges. And of course, the church is a little suspect of Paul. But a man by the name of Barnabas uh, comes alongside and recognizes that Paul is the real thing. And he gives, uh, through his own words, credence to his conversion. And the church allows Paul to go forth. And he really proves himself that this man who once persecuted the church was now a genuine, true believer. But Paul grew in Christ. He, he spoke about this and Philippians, and we should never stop growing, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what's in front of us. Paul wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and, and to know even in the fellowship of his suffering. So that's a growing, ongoing experience. And so though he's a, the great apostle and chosen by Jesus himself, obviously one of the requirements to be an apostle he still has to grow up in the faith like any of us, and he did. So great question. Uh, let's go to the next one. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. Uh, i got a couple questions. Uh, first question is, uh, in several of your messages, you, you have used the, the term parenthetically. I tried looking it up, but couldn't find it. Uh, for example, you'll say, well, let me just say parenthetically. Uh, my first question is, could you explain the definition of parenthetically, and what do you mean by that? And on the second question, uh, I know you've probably mentioned it before, but could you give sort of a thumbnail um, of your your testimony, how you came to Christ, uh, what led you to Buford? Uh, when you were in seminary, what led you to become an expository preacher, etc.? All right, a lot of questions there. Um, let me first respond to your question about a parenthetical statement. 
a parathetical statement is kind of an aside. In fact, you see this illustrated all the way through scripture. I just opened my Bible up and I looked down on the page and here's a, here's a parenthetical statement. It's found in uh, Romans chapter four. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. He's talking about justification by grace alone through faith alone, having illustrated through Abraham and David that the two men that were incredibly esteemed in the first century by the Jewish people were saved the same way that God saves us today, that God has only had one way of salvation for all time by grace through faith. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the, the father of us all. And then there's a parenthesis. Now understand that in the Greek New Testament, there is not periods, there are not question marks, there's not capital letters. Um, uh, in fact, in the uh, many of the ancient manuscripts, uh, they're all capital letters, every single letter. And sometimes not even spaces between the words uh, to save paper. In some manuscripts, it's all lowercase letters. Uh, when you have a Greek New Testament today, you buy a Greek New Testament in seminary when you first start learning Greek and there is a combination of both. In either case, he makes this parenthetical statement, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. So he, he gives this little parenthesis. Uh, it's an aside. And so you see God do that all the way through scripture. And there's a way in the grammar of the Greek New Testament to form a question, to form a rhetorical statement, to reform um, uh, to, to form a, a, a parenthetical statement. So there's a way in Greek grammar in which you do that. So it's not like, oh, the New American Standard here in Romans 4.17 just decided to put parentheses there. There was a reason for that because as they are translating the Greek into our English tongue, uh, they recognize that's a parenthetical statement. And so it's an aside, but an important aside. So sometimes... You know, I might give a parenthetical statement as I'm preaching through the text, sometimes for information's sake, recognizing that when I preach a sermon, I have to preach to a wide span of people, people who have never opened the Bible before in their life. And they just came to Christ a few days before uh, most Thursday nights or Sunday evenings. <clears throat> we have a thing called meet the pastor where people can come who um, many times attend and they have never received Christ before as their savior, but that night they do. And the following Sunday they're in church and they are for the very first Lord's day sitting with an open Bible, which most of the times we have given them and they are following along a sermon, having many times never read the Bible before at all. And especially with the millennial generation that's coming up and, and even younger than that, there's just like total biblical ignorance in the day that we live in. Uh, you know, when I was speaking with an 18 year old Marine recently and I asked them, well, do you know who Adam is and Eve and, and whether or not they ate the fruit? Well, he said, I've heard of Adam and Eve. I don't know anything about the fruit. And that, that's not laughable. That's kind of sad. And, but it's not uncommon either. Because now 80% of the children in America, 12 and under, go to church nowhere. 
So there's this new godless generation that is emerging and there's gross biblical ignorance. 75% of Americans, according to Barna, could not name more than four of the Ten Commandments. So we've become really a biblically illiterate culture. So with that said, many times as a preacher, you will give an ex- a parenthetical statement. I might make a statement, for instance, you know, God has chosen to bring about the second coming of Jesus through the nation of Israel. That's a statement. But let me just say parenthetically here, and then I go on to explain why that is true, why God has chosen Israel. So it's kind of an aside. It's an explanation that clarifies the thought that you just gave or maybe the thought that you're about to give. So um, that's how uh, it's used both biblically and in just common sometimes uh, communication, even by unsaved people. I came to faith uh, through... um, the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ at Boston College as a freshman. I was invited to, I actually wasn't invited. I was, I saw a sign, a handwritten sign uh, to go to um, a meeting that they were having and uh, up on McElroy, the 20th floor. And I went up there and there was about 25 people there from Harvard and MIT and Boston University and Boston College and They had just opened a ministry in the Boston area and they were all meeting these various Christians from different schools. And I heard a man give his testimony. And then I was invited the next week uh, to uh, uh, to a class where I was going to learn to share my faith. And so I went back the next week and I was learning to share the gospel using the four spiritual laws. And as I was reading through this little booklet, I was reading for the first time in my life, the plan of salvation. So um, the, the guy who was leading the class, his name was Ellis Goldstein. He said, he said, has said to me before, he said, I didn't really lead you to Christ. You kind of led yourself to Christ. And I said, well, that's not entirely accurate. But, um, you know, I read John three sixteen as far as I know, for the first time in my life, I was 18 years old and it was in January of 1975. And so that night I gave my life to Christ. Uh, why do I do expository preaching is I grew up in Christ over the next several years. I recognize that God actually gave a model within the scriptures on how to preach the scriptures. So God's word gives and illustrates the principle of expositional preaching. Now you can preach. Sometimes people think, well, expositional preaching is preaching through entire books of the Bible. That's one aspect of it. But sometimes I might give a message on marriage or I might give a message on um, how to deal with sin in your life. But I'm still going to preach expositionally some texts of scripture where you explain, you exegete what God has put in the text and you explain it and you give the meaning of it. And so you see illustrations of this, whether it's done by the apostles where they interact with the text and they explain it. But I do think it is very, very helpful to preach through entire books of the Bible because that's how they were given. Uh, You don't, when someone mails you a letter, start on page four, paragraph three, sentence four. Not if you want to understand the essence of the letter. You start at the beginning, you read all the way through from one end to the next. And then that gives you a sense of how the letter is unfolding. So anyway, uh, I hope that helps. Appreciate the question. Let's go on to the next. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. We were having a discussion on Sunday, and Pastor, I just want your feelings on this. Is the Bible inerrant? It's a little fuzzy there. You can turn down the volume, and he must be in his car or whatever. Let, but let me let me give some okay. context All here. Right. Yep. I, I we're in a ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship, and. Um, uh, we're studying because this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I'm covering the five solas. Right. And uh, in tongue in cheek, I, I asked the class, is the Bible inerrant? I asked first, I said, uh, you know, what, is the, what does it mean to be inerrant? And uh, everybody said, oh, it's without error. And I said, uh, okay, so is the Bible inerrant? And, of course, everybody responded, of course it is. And I said, well, not really, because the Bible is full of error. Look at David. Look at, you know, Samson. Look at this. I said, now, the illustrations given in the Bible are pointing to truth. And so in that respect, it is inerrant. So that's the basis of his question. I see. Well, obviously, everything that the Bible records, it does not endorse. So when Judas went out and hung himself, was that God's will for Judas to hang himself? No, God hates suicide, but it records that he hung himself. So what it records is absolutely infallible and without a single error. But that doesn't mean that everything that the Bible records is something that we should potentially emulate or embrace for our own lives. So there are numerous examples, obviously, you know, when David went and committed adultery with Bathsheba, do I say, well, you know, the Bible is the infallible word of God, and I guess I should follow David's example. No, of course not. Uh, But what it records about David's sin was absolutely infallibly true. And so um, there's a case when a man lies to David over how Saul uh, dies and the lie that's recorded in Scripture is inerrant in the sense that it is infallible. It is without any mistake that this is what this man actually said to King David. But God doesn't give endorsement to, to lying. So um, I see Rick was playing with you and having a little fun. But anyway, but, but Jesus taught, obviously, that every single word of the Bible is infallible. And this is an important issue in our day because we have churches cooperative baptist churches in our in our community that i will not advertise for i will not put on the radio um we won't advertise any of their events why because they deny biblical inerrancy they say the bible has mistakes in it that it's inspired in spots well if it's inspired in spots you have to be inspired to spot the spots and that's what the whole debate is that's going on when one local Methodist church, for instance, uh, sent a letter out and I have a copy of the letter uh, to its congregation saying that the bishops in South Carolina are nationally are praying about, you know, what we should do concerning the marriage of homosexuals in our United Methodist uh, denomination. What is there to pray about? There's nothing to pray about. That's like me saying, I'm going to, I need to pray about whether I'm going to murder Rick Forstner and his wife tonight. Uh, that's like me saying, I'm going to pray about whether I should commit adultery. There's nothing to pray about. God's word is plain. It's clear. It's infallible. But if you believe that Paul was a homophobic person and was just being driven by the culture of his day and not inspired by God, the Holy Spirit with every single word and syllable, then you might say, well, maybe, maybe we should 
marry homosexual people. And maybe we should redefine some of these uh, truths that have been held for several thousand years by the people of God. So Jesus taught right down to the tense of a verb, to the smallest jot or tittle, uh, the, the terms um, that are used there <clears throat> are in reference to a, a small mark that would distinguish two letters. Uh, the Daleth and the Resh, for instance, are two Hebrew letters. Maybe a comparison in English would be the distinction between capital O and capital Q. There's one little slash mark that distinguishes those two letters. Uh, that's um, that's the difference that Jesus is saying, you know, right, right down to those little slash marks. And by the way, he makes this statement in the Sermon on the Mount where it's a, it's an incredible sermon to study. I preached through the whole Sermon on the Mount many, many years ago. I should do it again. Maybe I'll preach through the whole Gospel of Matthew if the Lord will allow me. But he said, Truly I say to you, heaven and earth shall will not pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke. So I just define for you a stroke, like the difference between O and Q. Not the smallest letter or stroke. What was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet? It's a yod. And so yod looks like our apostrophe. It, that's how you form a yod in Hebrew. It's identical to an apostrophe in terms of the actual shape and virtually the size of it. And Jesus said, even the smallest little letter of the Hebrew alphabet is that's how inspired this scripture is on that occasion. Later in this gospel, it's recorded um, when Jesus has an encounter with the Sadducees, remember they were Sadducee because they denied the resurrection. And, and in Matthew 22, uh, Jesus says to them, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus quotes the book of Genesis and he makes it very clear that the argument is not, I was the God of Abraham, but I am meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive and their false doctrine uh, is therefore disqualified. But he makes the argument on the tense of a verb. So that's how Jesus viewed the scriptures and people who say, well, the Bible has mistakes in it. And, and you see, the sad thing is, is that some, some of these even cooperative Baptist churches, for instance, they can use the terms and they'll put it in their doctrinal statement because, you know, Carl Brogy said cooperative Baptists don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. And so they'll put it in their doctrinal statement. We believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They've just redefined terms. That's all they've done. So don't be fooled. Uh, do not be fooled. They mean something different by inerrancy. Uh, they're usually referencing what's called functional inerrancy, that the Bible is inerrant in its function to accomplish certain things in life, but not in every single word or statement or moral dictate that it gives. That's the devil at work. That's slick. It's evil. How he uh, takes words and twists them and and that's the way the devil works. Anyway, let's go to the next one. All right. A caller just called and would like you to please explain the sacrament of extreme unction. And does this help the dying person go to heaven? That is a great question. There are seven sacraments in Roman Catholicism. There are none in the Bible. Um, so um, to distinguish uh, two so-called sacraments that Roman Catholics practice, 
uh, one being baptism and the other, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Most evangelicals have historically referred to them not as sacraments, but as ordinances. In other words, these are symbols. They in no way impart grace in some supernatural way. So for instance, in the Baltimore catechism, it tells us in that um, baptism is the sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to the soul. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what the Catholic church teaches. So there's uh, something sacred about that act that they would say is more than symbolic. It literally washes away sin and brings salvation into the human soul. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, in the Bible, infants are never baptized. So, with the seven so-called sacraments of Catholicism, with each of them, there is some kind of impartation of grace, but that's not the biblical teaching. And one of the sacraments is what they call extreme unction. And this is when a priest ministers in the final hours, sometimes minutes or days of a person's life, knowing that death is imminent and they come and they exercise extreme unction over the person. And it's kind of a guarantee that their sins, whatever needs to be dealt with, have been dealt with, therefore, by the priests and the power that they believe was given through the Pope, through the Cardinals, through the bishops, all the way down to uh, the priesthood, and that they have this ability in which to somehow communicate an aspect of God's grace. Listen, uh, there's no uh, magical formula that some priests can utter over your body um, and bless you with some oil that somehow is going to, you know, bring about um, some kind of right standing with God. There's no such thing. So God's word is very, very, very clear. So this, this sacrament of anointing the sick or extreme unction, which is, it, again, it's only done to somebody who's seriously ill and they sense that the person is near death, that somehow this prepares them for heaven. That, that's just not true. God's word is very clear and, and they look for verses to try to um, baptize this doctrine in uh, James five. And I have a whole sermon on James five, 13 to 16. If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and so on. And, um, but that has nothing to do with the way Roman Catholics use it. That's a classic example of taking a verse out of context. So I don't know who this caller is, but <clears throat> let me just say this. You can know that you're going to heaven. You may be in perfect health today. And this is really the time to think that through, to make sure that you know that you know that you know that if the trumpet of God were to sound and Jesus were to come back, because he's going to come back one of these days and all the Christians are going to be removed or you're going to die. One of those two events is going to take place first. And if your life is not ready then you could be eternally lost. And so this is an important issue. You might want to go to searchthescriptures.org. Jesus told the Pharisees to search the scriptures because they speak of me. Paul spoke of the Bereans as more noble-minded than other people because they searched the scriptures uh, daily to see if the things he spoke of were accurate. And so go to searchthescriptures.org and find, would you like to have God as your friend? And listen to that presentation.